morning. Last uh, Sunday evening, we had a uh, missionary presentation. My parents were presenting, talking about uh, their ministry in Spain, and uh, part of their ministry is that they uh, they had these uh, English conversation kind of classes to get to meet people, and and they uh, do this as a way to offer free English classes, and uh, they get to meet people and have conversations and lead them into gospel conversations. Uh, the group that meets for English, uh, they, they do a kind of a cultural event each time in, in around November time to kind of uh, uh, do something to, to bring people in, and they have a Thanksgiving meal. Now, there are three missionary families that work together to host that meal. Uh, the, my parents, uh, the Burdettes, who is my brother-in-law and um, my sister, and then also the Romains. The Romains are not going to be there because of the issue going on with their son. Uh, they're in the States and they're taking care of uh, the medical issues of their son. Uh, the Burdettes were supposed to be on furlough, but... Um, they have delayed their furlough. They'll be gone now because they'll need some. They need some rest from uh, doing all this ministry. So it'll be my parents will be there by themselves to try to host this big Thanksgiving meal. Uh, so it provides a mission opportunity. Now it'll be a, a self-funded. You'd have to provide your own funds to go, but it'd be a neat opportunity to go and um, use your English and uh, your. Uh, grandmother's recipes, and cook something delicious, and uh, it would give an opportunity for you to share the gospel. If you are interested in going, please uh, let me know by the end of uh, this service, because uh, we would uh, need to start getting things worked out. So if you're interested in going, like I said, it's a self-funded trip, uh, but it would be a, a tremendous opportunity to use your cooking skills, your English skills, and of course, um, your knowledge of the gospel, to be sharing uh, gospel conversations with individuals. Please see me after the service. We have one couple that's interested in going. I think it'd be good to have at least uh, one other couple, maybe maybe two. Uh, so it's not a huge team, uh, but if you're interested in going, please see me after the service. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, we'll be looking at verses uh, 7 verse 13. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be looking at 7 through 13. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, this is the word of the Lord. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask, you do not lose heart 
at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we see in this text. I pray now, Father, that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our lives, that our minds would be illuminated. Father, for some of those here, it might mean that uh, they need to accept Christ as their Savior. And I pray that uh, they would understand their sinfulness and their separateness from you, Father, and that they'll put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and be saved. Father, I pray for those who are saved as we look through this text that your Spirit would convict of those areas that we need to change and that your Spirit would empower us to put it uh, to, to do what we need to do to glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. The context that we have been seeing that Paul has been presenting is this unity. A unity not brought on by uh, political affiliation, a unity not brought on by uh, cultural, but a unity that's brought on because uh, there has been uh, peace with God. Whereas they were separate from God, now they have peace. And this unity is, first of all, focused around God. But uh, it doesn't stop with just being focused on God, which is, is, is pretty impressive to think about. A person who is dead in their trespasses of sin, as it says in chapter 2, verse 1, totally separate, totally uh, dead. There's nothing that the person can do. That person is brought into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through the fact that he died in their place. And if you put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you're saved. The fact that this type of person could be united to God is incredible. But that unity doesn't stop with just the Father. As he's been presenting in chapter 3, and at the end of chapter 2, this unity is in this new creature that's being created, where there is a unity between the Jew and the Gentile being brought together. Now, we would apply this a step further that uh, if this is what God is working out in the church, the, the body of Christ, the universal church, however you want to call that, it, it would be also true in the local church, would it not? I mean, it would be quite absurd to think that uh, God is working in the body of Christ, a unity, but then in a local church we have, what, uh, four sections? We'd have four different groups. <laughs> Wouldn't that be absurd? Uh, this group over here does not come and talk to these people, and these people don't talk to these people, and so forth. And we've got four different groups. Well, that would be absurd. What, what is happening in the body of Christ also reflects in the local church the work that God is doing to bring a unity. As we are united to the Father, we're united to one another. Now, what we'll be looking at today is if you know the gospel, then be bold and don't be discouraged in suffering. If you know the gospel, if this is something that you know, you are to be bold and not be discouraged in suffering. Uh, the points that are coming here from this proposition, from this section, uh, note that chapter 3, 1 through 13 is one very long sentence in Greek. Uh, we have 
the translators have kind of divided it up a little bit to help us out, but it's one very long sentence, and in this very long sentence, we're going to see some points. Now, if you like having outlines where the points are parallel, you'll be quite frustrated by the end of this sermon because the points are not parallel. But rather, there are three observations that we can see from this fact that if you know the gospel, you're to be bold and not be discouraged in suffering. And the first point is that the grace that saves you also makes you a servant. The grace that saves you also makes you a servant. We see that in verses 7 through 9. In these verses, it says, uh, Paul says, of which, which is referencing back to the gospel, uh, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of which, Paul says, I was made a minister. That was made is a passive. So the idea that we should think about here, about him being made, is not that he showed up at, at a job fair and he saw that there was some oil jobs over here and there was some cooking jobs over here and, and there was some um, uh, medical jobs and then there, maybe there was some teaching and, and he kind of went through the fair and kind of picked up their literature and kind of saw some stuff and maybe talked with a guidance counselor and then, you know, over in the corner there was, you know, the ministry job and, and he's like, he looked at them all and said, I think I'll do the ministry job, and, and I'll, I'll go that direction. I mean, they don't do anything. They just work on Sundays and Wednesdays. So I think I'll do that. That's not the case at all. It's not that he chose this, but rather he was made. It's not an act of where he went out and did this, but rather he was made a minister. That word minister is where we also get the word deacon. It's, it, it, it's, it's an agent. A carrier, somebody that works between two parties. It, 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 it's where God is gracious and there's the sinful, nasty person and he has been made someone to go between the gracious God and the dead, nasty sinner. He's got a message to give, which is the message of verse 6, the gospel. He was made to be a minister the go-between, the carrier, the one who works between the two parties. On one part is God. On the other part is the sinful person. And the sinful person cannot get to God. They don't look for God. They don't care about God. If they're going to find out about God, it's because somebody who has received that grace will go and share the gospel with that person so that they can be saved. Now, as we see this, we have to ask ourselves, well, to which degree has he been made a minister? Well, according to the gift of God's grace. So according to the gift he has received, he has been made a minister. This gift of God's graciousness. The grace to, to take him, lost as he was, separate from the Gentiles, and to be brought together according to that grace... He's made a minister. Now, not only is he made a minister, but according to the working of his power. So to the degree of power that was required to save him is also the degree of power which has made him a minister. How much power is required to make this person saved? It requires a lot. If for some reason you think, 
well, I'm a pretty good person. It really doesn't require so much power to save me. You haven't understood the lostness. Furthermore, you haven't understood the holiness of God, the total otherness of God, that, that we cannot get to him. So as power was received for saving and grace was received for saving According to that grace and that power, he has been made a minister of this gospel. Not that he chose it, but he was made. He was given this authority. He was given this power to minister the gospel. Now, as we, as we see this, uh, his working out this power, in verse 8, Paul goes on to say, To me, the very least of all the saints. This least has uh, an idea of uh, communicating a, a low status. It has the idea of being of very little importance, being insignificant, trivial. It's the words he describes himself. He is insignificant. He's the very least, the, the smallest of all the saints. It's an interesting terminology he's using for himself. I mean, previously he called himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus in verse 1, and now he's calling himself the very least of all the saints. Why does he do that? It's kind of curious that um, this word for least isn't used a whole bunch of times. Uh, Paul does use it in another context to refer to himself and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, you'll note that the chapter is um, focused on the resurrection. And he's uh, arguing with them that if the resurrection had not happened, then uh, our, our faith is really worthless. I mean, we, we should have stayed at home watching cartoons, right? That, that would have been a better spend of time rather than coming here to worship somebody who is still dead. But Christ has risen. And as he is describing this uh, fact of the resurrection, he, he says in, in verse 9, um, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So in, in this context... Uh, Paul is um, telling them about the fact that he is an apostle, but he considers himself to be the, the very least, the most insignificant of the apostles. And in, in this context, he gives a reason why he feels this way. Because of his past actions, his past actions where he was persecuting the church, he was going and looking for Christians to be able to arrest, looking for Christians that... <laughs> if if context permitted, he could even kill them. And he feels that in the group of the apostles, he is the least, the one who is most insignificant. What's interesting is about maybe about five years later, is um, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And there seems to be a development in his, in his view of himself as he's looking at himself in 1 Corinthians, he's considering himself with the apostles, and in light of the apostles, he feels himself as being the most insignificant. But now he is looking at all the saints, 
He's at his, he's done three missionary journeys. He's in prison in Rome. He knows a lot of believers. He, he's written about some of them at the very end. He says, watch out about this person. Be careful for this other person. And even though he knows a ton of Christians in Ephesians, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words. This is his perspective on himself. There seems that rather than an increase in self-esteem, an increase in power and authority, he kind of seems to be going downward, like uh, not just the apostles, but now if you look at all the saints, I'm the very least. Paul comes to kind of uh, about 10 years after this, after Ephesians, and he's writing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And he says to Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. <laughs> it's like his self-esteem as he grows closer and closer to the Lord goes further and further down. Rather than a building up and saying, look how wonderful I am, it goes from I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the least of all the saints, I am the foremost of sinners. It's his opinion of himself. It, it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what he writes. Now, he, he's going back to our Ephesians passage, it, it doesn't say why he feels this. It, it doesn't start to elaborate as to why he feels that he is the least of all the saints. But as he is writing to these individuals, he considers himself not somebody grand and powerful, but rather someone who is the least of all the saints. Now, think about that. Paul is the least of these, but what is he doing? He says, this grace was given, not that he went and grabbed it, but it was given to him, not that he went out pursuing it, but it was delivered to him. It was put in his hands. This grace was given uh, to preach to the Gentiles. It's to proclaim, to give good news. He was given this, even though he is the least, the smallest, the most insignificant, he is to given this opportunity to preach to the Gentiles. What is he preaching? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Incomprehensible riches of Christ. It's a, that word unfathomable, it, it doesn't occur a lot of times in the New Testament. There's only one other text, which is Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And in that context, it's talking about God's knowledge and his knowledge to save. And as, he, as Paul is writing about God's knowledge to save and what he knows, he, he says, oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. As unfathomable are the ways of God, are unfathomable the riches of Christ. As unable to be able to count them all, Christ has riches. Now, what is this riches about? The riches of Christ. What is he rich in? 
what contextually has been talking about this grace, this grace that was given. What is it that man so desperately needs that God has in abundance of? You might say, well, finances. <laughs> I need finances. I, I can't go to Taco Bell for lunch. I don't have any money. I need finances. Or you might say, well, I, I need clothing. I desperately need clothing. You might say, I, I need friends. I'm desperately lonely. I need friends. Or you say, I, I need help. I'm sick, and I'm sick of being sick. I need help. And it's not what you need. What we need is grace. And God has unspeakable amounts of grace. Grace to give. What we need so desperately is grace of God. And Christ has it. He's unfathomable riches of grace for us. Now, these riches, as it says now in verse 9, uh, he goes on to say, and to bring to light, that bring to light is to shine a light. So he's, he has this unfathomable riches, and he's been given to bring light, to shine light, to illumine, kind of like when you're laying in the chair at the dentist's office, and the guy brings the light and he shines it in there, is to be able to see clearly. To shine light to what? What is the administration of the mystery of the, uh, which for the ages has been hidden in God who created all things? So he is to preach this grace, preach to the Gentiles about the unfathomable grace, and also to, to shine a light, to give clarity, to, to explain. Now what in the world is this administration? What in the world is he talking about? It, the, another word you could translate that word administration is you could translate it as a dispensation. What in the world is a dispensation? What in the world is this administration that he's talking about? An administration or a dispensation is the revealing of a truth that makes the person to whom it was revealed responsible. There is blessing if you obey, there is punishment if you disobey. And that, that is what is presented. Now, if we were to look at this and we say, well, what in the world is this administration? What is he talking about, this administration? Some might say, well, this administration is, um, is what God has been doing all along throughout the whole Old Testament. And you could interpret it that way. Some people only see one plan of God working out. And God works this, this one plan. He's got a people, and he is redeeming a people, and he has a, a, a group. And, and so they say, well, this is just the same of that. The difficulty is to kind of ignore the fact that it was a mystery that was not revealed until Christ. So if you're going to hold that it is the Old Testament, that God has been working this administration out, in the Old Testament, you have uh, the whole Old Testament going around unclear, not knowing at all about what is going on. Some would say, well, this administration, this uh, administration that's being talked about is the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 
where God promises to Judah and to Israel that he's going to um, write the law on their heart. He says, they'll say, uh, this, is, this is the new covenant. And you could hold to it the new covenant, just like you could hold that it's just the Old Testament. Um, but in doing that, what the person is required to do is look at only similarities, only similarities. They say, well, there's an administration that is happening in the new covenant, and, uh, and there is um, Christ is here, and so therefore they must be one and the same. But you don't distinguish things by looking at similarities, do you? I mean, uh, you, you can imagine uh, going through life only looking at similarities. You, you don't really distinguish between uh, similarities. For example, imagine if we were kind of careless like that with the doctrine of the Trinity. We would say, well, God the Father is God, and, and God the Son is God, therefore they must be just one person. And God the Spirit is God, so they must just be one person. So it must just be one God who puts on God the Father hat, and then takes it off and put God the Son hat on, and takes it off and then put God the Holy Spirit on. Well, we were saying, no, that's not it at all. There's one God, but three persons. Each one is different. One God, but three persons, a trinity. Or if we were careless like that with our interpretation of, of the gospel, we would say, well, Abraham believed God and was counted for him as righteousness, so all we have to do is tell people, believe God. Well, that's not what is written in, in, in John or in Ephesians, where our faith is put in Jesus Christ and his work. So what in the world is this administration? Well, we need to look at, at differences. And differences are very, very important. Uh, for example, uh, I don't think that there's any Luises in here. I don't think there's a Luis. I think we're good with it. So I won't use a Luis. But let's imagine that Luis is a very well-known known member in our church. Incredible man. Incredible testimony. Incredible Bible teacher. Fantastic guy. And, um, and, I, and I tell you... Uh, the sad news that Luis has had an affair. And everybody goes, oh, no. And I say, yes, he, he did. And uh, I can't believe it. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I say to you, I said, you know, Luis, he used to crack me up with his, um, his Argentinian accent. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Maybe we're not talking about the same Luis. I said, no, I, we are. And you say, well, the, the Luis that I know, he, he's got black hair. And I say, hey, it's the same Luis. That guy's got black hair too. He said, the Luis I know, he teaches Bible here. He, 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 has, he has kind of brownish skin. Now, yeah, that's who I'm talking about. And you say, but the Luis that I know, he, he was born here in Texas. And he, he, he's lived in Texas, and he doesn't have an Argentinian accent. Ah, oh, but that's just a little difference. We don't need to be worrying about that. Let's just look at the similarities and just say that Luis had an affair. Well, that would be absurd. You'd be like, no, we can't do that. They're two different people from two different countries. Differences are very important, and there are differences that are happening here. This is an administration, this is a dispensation that was hidden in God but is manifested in Christ, where Christ is the head. 
where he's bringing in this new creature which is, has the Jew and the Gentile and they're together and it's in the church. In verse 10, we're going to see what he does. How the church is involved. Now, when we look at this, we see that the grace that saves you also makes you a servant. Uh, we are saved to serve. We're saved to serve. In case you start thinking that Paul is made a minister to the degree that he was saved, only applies to Paul, is not, it would, would be an incorrect conclusion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 20, uh, Paul is uh, addressing the believers there, and he says that we're a new creature. All things are passed away. New things have come. He says, now these things which are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg on your behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. To the degree that we have received grace is to the degree that we have been sent as ministers of the gospel. You say, well, that's just Paul. Well, Jesus also did it too. You remember Matthew 28, 19 through 20? We can go back over Matthew if you guys have forgotten. Uh, all of a sudden you guys remember, right? Oh, no, we're good. We don't need to go back over Matthew. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ commissioned us. As we receive grace, we give the good news to others. Grace received, we give grace. Now, in the pastor's corner, pastor's words, I'm not sure what it is, that part in the bulletin, there is a, a reference to Jim Berg's book, uh, Created for His Glory. It's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. It has uh, also a workbook. You can work through the workbook. Uh, but he, he uses an illustration of police officers who are, are given power, who are given authority and given power. The authority is in, in the badge, and uh, the power is, is the gun. And we, praise the Lord, there are great officers who uphold the law, and uh, there's, there's peace, and praise the Lord. But let's imagine a, a, a not very good cop, a not very good police officer. He, he abuses his power, and he abuses it by, he, he goes around waving his gun in front of everybody. Uh, here comes up a kid, and he's like, get back, kid! And you're like, what, what is the matter with this guy? You would say, this, this is an abuse of power that's going on. Well, let's imagine now the other side of the spectrum. Let, let's imagine that you're being chased. There's uh, some robbers, and they're chasing you, and they want to take your stuff. And, and you're running, and you run right past this police officer, and he has this fresh cup of coffee and a donut. And he goes right by him, you go, and, and also there goes the robbers. But, but he just has this fresh cup of coffee and this donut. And he says, when I get done with my coffee and my donut, then I'll go and, and help you. 
You'd be like, what are you doing? And he's just like, You're like, dude, they're, they're running after me. Help me. You're like, just a minute. What's, what's the rush? I, my coffee's hot. And this donut is fantastic. You would say, that, that's an abuse of power. That's, that's being irresponsible with the authority and power that you have. Can you imagine a minister of the gospel, which we all are, that says, no, I'm kind of comfortable right now. It's too hot to evangelize, but around February it'll cool down a little bit. Then I'll go share the gospel with you. You just, I, hopefully you won't die before I get to you, but it's just too hot. I don't want to break a sweat. You're like, dude, you have what they need. They need grace, and you have it. Yeah, but it's not convenient for me right now. But later on, I'll share the gospel with them. You say, that's an abuse of power. That, that's being lazy. And yet we've been commissioned to give this gospel. To give this gospel, we must be insignificant. It's really hard to think highly of yourself and to be a minister of the gospel. Paul says he's, he's the least. When you think highly of yourself, and I know this is totally countercultural. I know, I know it is. We're all, all about filling up our little teacups, and until we're running over, then we can help others. I get it. I know this is totally countercultural. But until you think less of yourself and more about God, you're not going to serve God. You just won't. There'll be something else you have to do. There'll be somewhere else that you have to spend the money. There'll be something else that you need to go attend to until you lose sight of yourself and focus on God. Until you become insignificant, you're not going to minister the gospel. You'll be worried about being rejected. You'll be worried that there won't be a crowd like Billy Graham had a crowd. You'll say, well, what if they don't respond? What if they laugh at me? Until you see yourself insignificant, you won't share the gospel. Now, not only that, but the church must boldly, church, the church boldly and confidently proclaims God's wisdom. Here we go in verse 10. Now, it's talking about sh shedding this light, and he says now in verse 10, so that, this is a purpose clause that he's writing, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be, uh, might now be made known through the church. How is God's wisdom going to be known? His manifold wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom, how is it known? It's through the church. God decided through the church that his wisdom should be known to whom? Who's going to be the spectators? Uh, it says the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. As in, the angels are up there and they're watching and they're saying, I don't know about this plan of yours. And God's saying, I'm going to use these dead, nasty, wretched sinners and I'm going to do something fantastic. And they're like, I don't know about that. Really? And he's like, yeah, you watch. They're all separate. They all have their own agendas. I'm going to bring them together. They're all going to be under the head of Christ. There's going to be unity. Ah, no, not those, not those two people. He said, yeah, I'm going to bring them together. The Jew and the Gentile? Oh, yeah. 
The church reflects the wisdom of God. I wonder if that's true of the body of Christ, is that also true of our local church? In other words, do, do we reflect the wisdom of God or do we reflect our own wisdom and our preferences? The, the context he's giving here is that the church is to do this as it ministers the gospel. It ministers God's wisdom. Now, as we see this, he uses, uh, he goes on to say, uh, manifold wisdom of God being made known through the church, the rulers of authority, verse 11. This was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, uh, in whom we have boldness. That word boldness is the freedom to speak. It, it has this idea of uh, being able to speak frankly, plainly, without trying to hide some people you talk to and you have to kind of go around and around and around and around and let them come to the conclusion because if you just tell them something, they're going to get offended. This is a boldness where you can just speak. It's a, it's a confidence. And not only a boldness, but you have um, an, an access, a confident access, which has a way of approaching. It's used a lot for boats uh, as a port is a place of access. Especially if you have a uh, coastline that's very rocky and there's nowhere to go, it has access through a port. That's this word. It's usually used in, in, in shipping. But it's a confident access. It's a, it's a certainty that you can go in. You can approach it. This has been made. How is it made? How is this done? It says, through faith in Him. The way that it happens is through faith, that the, the ductwork, the way, the pathway is through faith in Him. We have access. That, that's an incredible thought. Us, nasty, wretched sinners, access to God the Father. That, that's an amazing thing. We have boldness to be able to just come and be in His presence. Now, when we think about this, we don't need to confuse the purpose of the church. And there is a lot of confusion with the purpose of the church. Uh, some people think that the purpose of the church is a, a place to entertain their kids, a place to disciple their kids. Parents are responsible for discipling their kids. The church only comes alongside. A place where free food is given out. A place where school supplies are given. Some people look at the church as a place to meet singles. Some say it's a place where they sing my favorite songs. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to show the wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God. That's why we come together. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we engage in what we do and we share the gospel is to show the wisdom of God. Anything else is, is not the purpose. And if you come looking for some other thing other than the purpose of the church, you've missed the point. Don't confuse the purpose of the church. Rejoice in the boldness and access that you have to the Father. This is an amazing thing. That through sharing this wisdom of God, people can have access to God the Father. The last point 
is verse 13. If you heard the gospel, then don't be discouraged. I said that uh, chapter 3, verse 2, starts a conditional, first-class conditional Greek sentence, if you're interested in that type of stuff. It starts, if indeed you heard, and the idea is not heard as in your ears perceived sound, but it was if you have understood the implications of something. If you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, here's what you're supposed to do. Verse 13, therefore, if this, then this. And it's therefore, I ask you do not lose heart at my tribulations. If you know the gospel, then don't lose heart. That's the part of the conditional sentence. If this is true, then this. You don't lose heart. Losing heart is to lose one's motivation. It's to uh, lose enthusiasm. It's to be discouraged. It's to be afraid in in view of a great difficulty. It's like you're standing in front of a huge mountain and you have to go over it and you, you get discouraged. And he says, don't. If you know the gospel, then do not lose heart. And it's losing heart at my tribulations. Why would losing heart at Paul's tribulations, I mean, what does that have to do? Well, in one sense, if God is allowing Paul to go through and be imprisoned, what will God allow for them to go through? If, Paul, if God is allowing God, uh, Paul to go through such difficulties, what will God allow the Ephesians to go through? And they could imagine that if, if Paul is going through this, who am I? I don't want to go through these difficulties. And you could get discouraged. But if you know the gospel, don't lose heart. Because he's suffering these things on your behalf. Paul could have just stayed at Tarsus. Could have had some fried fish, maybe had some fish tacos. It would have been great. Died an old man. Maybe give his tithe every once in a while. But instead, he served. And because he served, he suffered. And it was, for, uh, for they are for your glory. It was for their benefit. It wasn't for his own benefit. It was for their benefit. Can you imagine that type of life? Not that you're going to a place looking to see what you can receive, but going to a place so that you can give. Can you imagine a church gathering together that's not looking to see what will the church do for me today? but saying, I've come here so that I can give of myself so that another person can be encouraged. I'm coming here today because I want to pour myself out into the lives of other individuals. Can you imagine what what type of church that would be? It would be totally radical. It would be totally different. We have a lot of places where people want to go and they want to consume But Paul says, I suffer these tribulations for your glory, for your benefit, for your good. Imagine if we got up Sunday and we had that attitude. As we look at this, 
If you know the gospel, then be bold and don't be discouraged in suffering. See, the conditional sentence is that there might be someone here that doesn't know the gospel. They can try to be bold. When they go into suffering, they don't know why it's happening to them. They get discouraged. But if you know the gospel, then you can be bold and you don't have to be discouraged in hard times. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, if we really have heard the gospel, if we have really understood the gospel, Father, then we can be bold. And that boldness would help us be good ministers of the grace, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Father, if we understand the gospel, then even the biggest obstacles will look at them as a way to suffer for the good of others. Father, I pray that we won't be coming to this church looking to receive something, but rather that we'll come looking to give, to pour ourselves out for your honor and glory. Father, if there's someone here that's not saved, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'd encourage you to stay.